0: Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges we'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. We're your hosts Dimitri and Etienne. We're starting with a bit of a special episode since we're going to be talking about our own experience on Mazi Farm in Greece. This is a way to share our experience with you, but also to set the stage for the rest of the podcast series since the reason we're doing it is a direct consequence of the many questions we ask ourselves while working on the land. We decided to structure this episode by setting on the table some of the big questions that every agroforestry project faces at some point or another. We're gonna talk about economic models, land, which trees to choose, scale, complexity, machines, and animals. For each one of them, we first explain how we tackled that question on the farm and share some things we learned, some of our successes and mistakes. For each topic, we then identify the key points that we find interesting to explore with our future guests. These are linked to our experience, and so, by nature, they're limited. That's why, if you think we're missing some important aspects, well, please reach out to us so that we can make sure we enrich our discussions and interviews. So, Dimitri, how about you tell us a bit about Mazzy Farm?
0: Mazi Farm was created in 2017 by my family and I and was greatly inspired by the likes of Mark Shepard, Ernst Gotsch and the Regen Ag movement in general. We're, we're trying to tackle the challenges of producing food whilst regenerating land. The idea is that if we mimic natural processes, accelerating them with our inputs and labor, we should be able to regenerate severely degraded land and turn it into productive land. So we set out with the objectives to create knowledge adapted to the Mediterranean context to test out techniques to do some R&;D and build solutions we went about looking for degraded regions of Greece uh, already historically degraded country bought five hectares of land and started mazi farm our process and and path naturally led us to agroforestry most of Greece actually used to either be oak forest or oak savanna more than 10,000 years ago before humans significantly changed the landscape and these forests were growing without fertilizer and without irrigation providing for an abundance of wildlife now i'm not necessarily saying that we can feed the world population with such a hands-off in such a hands-off way but there are dynamics in nature that create fertility and conditions for life and the hypothesis we're testing out at Mazi is that If we can farm by harnessing these patterns instead of going against them, we can be productive whilst regenerating land. To illustrate this a bit further, there's the concept of natural succession. Now this is the process in which a bare piece of disturbed land will naturally in time turn into a forest. So we're trying to harness these forest dynamics to create a productive system, producing in a way that requires less inputs is, ecologically and is ecological and can sustain itself into the future. So we're going to start by talking about finances. Any
1: project needs to face the first question of, oh, what economic model? Well, as Dimitri just explained, Mazifarm Farm has a strong R&D focus, which means that it has a kind of hybrid business model. Because of the main objective is to generate knowledge, this means that we have higher costs linked to testing different things out as well as high risk, since by definition, you're doing something innovative with no guarantees of success. In order to be able to keep our focus on experimenting and testing out tree systems, we opted for financing the initial years with philanthropic investment and crowdfunding, while simultaneously ramping up our production, transformation of products and sales to learn and adapt to the markets. Once we reach full production and we are satisfied with our tree systems, our crops will become the main income of the farm. Because of the size of our land and the difficulties of mechanizing production, we have focused on developing high quality products with high added value targeted for niche markets. We're now focusing on testing out cash flow enterprises such as berries to understand what are the best associations with our tree systems. We are quite isolated from our market since the local demand for high quality organic-ish products is quite low, That's because the purchasing power of locals is limited, while many people have gardens where they produce their own fruit and vegetables. This focused our strategy on traditional, high-quality crops that could be dried and stored to facilitate distribution outside the island. Drying offers a double advantage as it increases storability, therefore reducing waste, but also because it adds value to the product. The transformation of products is key to our commercial strategy. To give you a few examples, we're focusing on making dried figs, but also considering dried berries and dried pomegranates. We decided that we didn't want to wait for our first harvest to build a customer base and test out the market. So we partnered up with an organic neighbor who produces dried figs to help them transform their production and distribute it under a sister brand, Mazzy Spoon. They are an aging couple who are delighted to get some extra hands helping out. And we, well, we gained some experience, a customer base, and a first income. This isn't replicable everywhere, but for us, it worked really well to start selling a transformed product and then integrate our production progressively from there. What became clear to us is that economic models solely based on production remain challenging for really degraded land. The good news, though, is that there's a lot of public interest in planting trees and a lot of possibilities for funding. These can help spread the cost of implementing agroforestry between the farmer, the consumer, companies, and public administration. One of the problems with tree crops in general is creating short term cash flow. Of course, if your main crop is not trees and you're just integrating them to another enterprise, the situation will be different. There are, of course, different ways to cash flow the first years until harvest with complementary enterprises that produce the first year, such as chickens or vegetables. But that's not necessarily easy to implement when your main focus is a relatively large scale tree crop system. Many things come in the way, such as lack of time, experience and knowledge of having to manage everything at the same time. Really getting to the bottom of successful agroforestry business models will be one of the most important and exciting topics we'll be tackling in the podcast. How to successfully integrate different enterprises in a way that is coherent both commercially, practically, and ecologically? How does agroforestry integrate with a farmer's current market and infrastructure? Or how does one create a new market? Another important element is to understand what funding possibilities are out there. I know that in France, for example, you can get two thirds of the cost of planting trees covered. So we're looking forward to identifying the innovative
0: financing schemes out there. So how did we end up with this land? The type of land we chose was defined by the vision and R&D objectives of the farm described earlier. We weren't looking for the ideal land and definitely didn't didn't end up with it either. The idea was that if it works here in Stira, it can work anywhere. We chose a land that could test out our model for Greece, which means small acreage. So the average farm in Greece is four hectares, limited mechanization, hilly, rocky. We have an average slope of around 50%, 15%, which means it's prone to erosion, a big problem in hilly Greece and where perennial crops are the most adapted. We have low fertility due to overgrazing and historic agricultural use. It was actually farmed by a monastery in the past for many years. And we also have shallow soil in most places. The land is on top of a hill with a lot of wind as well. So the odds are definitely against us. We have water problems, fertility problems, and wind problems. And I believe that our lack of experience made us take a land that may be a bit too challenging, and only now we're really seeing and feeling that. But linking it back to agroforestry, It's interesting that the more difficult the land is, the more agroforestry has to offer in agronomical advantages, but also the more costly it is to put into place. So what's the right balance? Marginal land can be cheaper and so offer economic opportunities, but can also be too marginal and incur serious costs and low production to maintain a business. It also makes you ask the question of what is the best adapted agroforestry practice for what land? Would the most adapted system for us be silver pasture with wild wood producing trees or the mixed fruit orchard system that we chose? The land issue is foundational to start any farm enterprise, and we'll be asking ourselves many questions like, what are basic requirements for productive agroforestry systems? What innovative ways are there to access land when one doesn't necessarily have the capital to buy it? Is it possible to rent land with these types of systems? So logically, after
1: finding land, the next question is, what do you put on it? Which trees? The main crops that we have planted are pomegranates, figs, pistachios, almonds, and prickly pears. We selected these crops after careful observation of the surrounding vegetation. We knew we had difficult land, so we were looking for trees that are doing well without irrigation, inputs, or management. In the surrounding mountains, you can find fig trees growing on their own, wild pistachio trees, and wild almonds. Prickly pears grow without human care, and although pomegranates are rarely growing wild, you often see abandoned trees still producing. Alongside our productive trees, we planted many other trees, either as support species or as windbreaks. We planted two types of trees. Some were selected to kickstart things because they are both hardy and fast-growing. This led us to plant many eucalyptuses and acacia salina which produce much more biomass than local trees. These trees allow us to have an impact on the land quickly. We also invested a lot of time and energy in planting diverse windbreaks and hedges to host biodiversity and serve as ecological corridors on the farm. These are often slower growing local trees, for example, carobs, cypresses and oaks. We even planted oaks in our tree lines to see if in the long run they can become support species for productive trees. We're excited to see how they evolve and their impact in the next years. Although we knew the importance of genetics and varieties, we were greatly limited by what was available in Greece and our own knowledge. Progressively, we've been testing different nurseries out and have ordered from Italy last winter. Finding the right partners to work with that can provide the quality of plants you need takes time, and it was clearly detrimental that we did not have that network when we started. Because of these difficulties, we started some nursery work as well, but we quickly realized that it's highly technical work and that working with genetics was beyond our capabilities at the time. I really believe that, unless you're already an expert, identifying the people who have that knowledge and building strong partnerships is the safest route. Working with genetics to adapt to climate change and pests really seems like something crucial, but it's one of our weaknesses because we lack that expertise. And I'm really looking forward to getting the right people on the podcast so that we can learn to fully harness that potential. Understanding the potential of different types of trees and how they can be used in different contexts is crucial for agroforestry. Should we use native species only? Should we use invasive species as well? What combinations of trees work well and which ones are adapted to each type of land? What varieties should we privilege? What are the trade-offs between heirloom or modern varieties? I mean, the list is endless and there's so much knowledge out there we can tap into together.
0: At what scale can agroforestry work? As I mentioned earlier, we have a five hectare land. We're actually looking for something bigger, but we didn't find it easily for a reasonable price. And at the end of the day, it's probably a good thing we didn't find it so early. Although it came a bit late, we did finally do a proper business plan. Once we had the experience to make a decent one that was representative of a reality. We found that when the land becomes productive, if we manage to control investments and with a well-planned commercial strategy, we can sustain the business and even be profitable on five hectares. And that is with 400 fig trees, 250 pistachios, 400 pomegranates and 250 almonds we decided to plant out the whole land quickly in the first two planting seasons. One reason is that we wanted to test things at a certain scale in order to get a better understandings of the systems we implemented. The other is that we were tempted to get going quickly because we were aware of how much time the trees take to grow and we didn't want to lose that time. Taking a step back, it's really exciting how agroforestry is a great toolkit at whatever the scale. We'll really be exploring this diversity in the podcast, looking at simple, large-scale systems or intensively managed, smaller-scale ones, and probably everything in between. There's three important considerations when looking at scale. What's the type of agroforestry system adapted to one's situation? What's the ultimate size that makes economic sense? And how quickly to reach that size? So let's break them down a bit. For the type of agroforestry system, we have to ask ourselves, How can perennial systems merge with and benefit current systems? They have to adapt to the land, market, and crops present. If properly selected, they have the potential to enhance the value of the land by harnessing its assets, as well as reducing the effects of some of the major drawbacks present. On Mazzy Farm, for example, we're on an exposed hill, which means lots of wind and lots of sun. So we planted many functional windbreaks to solve that problem in the future and we were also able to plant very densely taking advantage of the sun. The next is what's the appropriate size for the type of agroforestry being implemented? What does the business plan say? Can we build very productive small-scale plots where high management, high production combined with limited investment create profit? Carbon credits and other ecosystem service funding may also be a consideration here. This would help with scaling the operation, for example. But the size ultimately depends on the farmer's resources and capabilities. Finally, it seems that how quickly we reach that size size will also ultimately depend on the resources and capabilities of the farmer. On the farm, for example, we implemented quickly with limited experience and limited local knowledge, which meant that we were quite inefficient and incurred some unnecessary costs.
1: How complex to go is one of the questions we are constantly discussing with Dimitri on our numerous agroforestry rants. Imitating natural patterns pushes us towards complexity, diversity, and towards integrating different productive elements as much as we can. As Dimitri explained at the beginning, replicating these natural patterns is a strategy to achieve general health of the system and of the soil. In Mazi we pushed this logic quite far in the initial design. First, we planted a great diversity of crops, as mentioned earlier. Then, instead of separating the land in specialized sections, we integrated the different crops together. The idea here is to stratify, or stack, crops to make the most efficient use of space. To give you an example, lines of pomegranates are intercropped as a shade-tolerant lower layer, with lines of figs and pistachio trees which sit slightly above. Another layer of complexity is that we are trying to harness natural succession to repair the soil and prepare it for production. To do so, we include within the tree lines what we call support species. These pioneer trees or shrubs are included to support our main crop through providing shelter and biomass while decompacting the soil and releasing root exudates to promote, promote soil biology. These plants are regularly pruned to produce biomass that will be used as an input. Another example of that is prickly pears, which are included within certain lines. Again, the idea here is to have these hardy pioneer plants prepare the conditions for our fruit trees while also producing a crop. While all this makes a lot of ecological sense and offers some clear benefits, it does come at a certain cost and with some some difficulties. One consequence of this diversity is the amount of trees to plant between the windbreaks hedges, and support species. We literally added thousands of trees to our main tree crops, which has a significant cost. The general trend is that the more complex the system is, the more time it takes to manage. For example, the support species are an interesting tool, but you have to add the time of planting them and pruning them, which again adds costs. As you complexify, you tend to make things harder to manage since it's harder to standardize. Each time you want to prune or harvest a specific crop, well, you have to walk almost the whole land. Another consequence of complexity is that it makes it harder to give instructions and have people help efficiently because you have to spend so much time training them and explaining the system to them. Because complex systems often require so much specific knowledge and because they are so innovative, they are also risking the short term. I mean, they require knowledge for each type of crop and the interaction with the soil and the climate and the different varieties. This is why if R&D is not an objective in itself and you do not have a clear budget for it, it is safer to start with simpler systems that are complexified over time. This allows you to grow alongside your project and mitigate some of the risk that goes with complexifying. We're constantly trying to balance the benefits this diversity and complexity provides to the higher costs that come with it. Since we're always so constrained by time and money, it's about how much can we simplify these systems without compromising the ecological functions we are seeking. Many concepts out there, stratification, natural succession, etc. are only theories until you find how to put them to work in practice. Understanding better their role is necessary to understand to what extent they are worth the extra work. This is what we're attempting at Massey Farm, but many other projects can contribute their experience to the conversation. We'll get to talk to a great diversity of projects, some with simple systems, some with more complex ones, and try and get a sense of how that is working for them. There will be no right or wrong, but rather it's about identifying the parameters to choose the right
0: balance between complexity and practicality. How are we fixing the soil and ensuring fertility? These are big topics on all farms. I'll provide a brief summary of what we did on the farm as we tried out a lot of different things. We prepared most of our tree lines by ripping to as deep as 80 centimeters whenever possible, breaking the shale bedrock. We then applied chicken manure on the tree lines, tilled it in and planted into that. This past year, we started balancing and remineralizing our soil based on help from consultants that work with the approach of William Albrecht and we've been applying a thin layer of manure on the soil as well in the most degraded areas. All fruit trees were planted with composts. We actually tried different kinds, some of of them bought and some of them we made, and the trees were all inoculated with mycorrhizae. At the beginning, we we mulched with straw and everything flew away with the wind. So we bought a chipper and started making wood chips ourselves from local olive farms that would otherwise burn the branches. What's also important to mention is that we've been sowing a mix of more than 20 cover crops in the pasture and we have irrigation pipes for all our tree lines. We weren't actually as happy as we would have liked with our tree growth. The areas that had alre- that were already fertile grew very well, but the areas that were degraded struggled a lot more. What we realized these past three years is just how technical managing inputs properly is. As we all know, getting a tree to produce a few years earlier, thanks to good fertilization and soil prep, can make a huge difference for the cash flow. There are are so many techniques, products, philosophies out there, and we really want to get into and find out which ones work. We want to find out what knowledge a farmer needs to get started efficiently, and where does he or she get it. Inputs can also have a huge energetic and financial cost. If you just take the wood chips as an example, they had a clear effect on soil moisture, weed suppression, and promoting soil life. But they represented a huge labor cost to produce and apply. So how effective were they really? For some, it may be easy to source, even free, and to apply with appropriate machines. For others like us, not so much. But in general, we can safely say that the inputs are expensive on many levels. As we mentioned earlier, the support species, or wild trees in between the fruit trees, are meant to be replacing inputs in the median term. Their prunings will provide fertility, carbon, and they will feed the soil life and do much more. The pruning, however, does represent a high labor cost, but we're testing it out and collecting time data to find out if it's worth it compared to importing all that biomass from outside the farm. We're also trying to work with the grasses as a quick decomposing, fast-acting mulch and on-site composting on the tree lines. But but we're having some difficulties with machines to do that efficiently on the farm. To summarize, we need to find out the most effective ways to create good physical, chemical, and biological conditions in the soil as as fast as possible. How many inputs need to be invested in the soil to breach the threshold that will give the trees a great start whilst limiting these expensive costs? How do you make sure trees are not dependent on our inputs and activate their own fertility mechanisms? It's just such a huge complex and technical topic and fascinating really.
1: So what machines to use then once you have that system? Well, machines are not our strong point. So we'll keep this section brief. We have quite specific constraints with steep land, rocky terrain, and typical of Greece, I mean, Because of the slope and a dense tree system, it's quite difficult to mechanize. We tested out many different machines to understand what is best adapted to our farm. Our objective is to have few machines, but some that are versatile and that we can use to do many different things. For managing the interlines, we have been testing various attachments on the two wheel tractor to avoid putting heavy machinery on the land. What's become clear for us is the necessity of finding a balance between using machines to increase efficiency, but without letting them become money drains because of maintenance and depreciation. The good news for both of us, and for our listeners, is that so many farmers are coming up with smart innovations and appropriate use of machines. Machinery will be a cornerstone of upscaling successfully agroforestry systems and reducing management time. On the other hand, we also need to reinvent the way we use machines in light of our dependence on fossil fuels and the cost of machinery itself. As we progress, we'll get to understand better what machines are farmers using to manage their systems and what tools are appropriate for each scale.
0: So how do we integrate animals? We've been aware of the ecological and economic benefits of including animals in our farm systems, but we've hesi- on Massey Farm, we've hesitated to integrate them yet. This is because it represents one more thing to know how to manage and careful. We started already with little experience and a lot on our plate, so we didn't really feel capable of managing an extra complex element. The other reason is that we didn't want to risk damage to the young trees. Like everything, it requires a lot of knowledge to get right. We do, however, regularly discuss this topic and we want to develop it as much as possible. Obviously, silver pasture is a major system, integrating trees and animals with many scientifically proven advantages and established models. Taking it a bit further, We also want to find out how we can integrate animals in other systems such as orchards, vineyards, and even arable land. There are a lot of technical questions to get into, like what combinations of trees and animals? What specific breeds are best suited for which type of agroforestry systems? How to maximize the symbiosis between these elements? Or how to protect the young trees efficiently? These are all questions that remain unanswered on the farm, but we know of lots of very interesting projects happening around this topic. Well, that's us for today then, and we have only focused on the points
1: where we thought we could contribute the most interesting contents linked to our experience, but we will be exploring many other topics on the podcast, such as infrastructure, forest management, specific agronomic techniques, and much more. We also skimmed over the surface in a lot of things we talked about on Mazi, and so if you have specific questions about Mazi Farm, because it's relevant to your own experience, well, don't hesitate to reach us out and we'll answer your questions and we might even do a more specific Q&A episode later in in the series. So please share with us any specific topics or questions that you would like us to see to cover with our future guests and don't hesitate to connect with us on social media and our website. We hope you are as excited as we are about this podcast and that you will join us as we continue learning about agroforestry. See you soon.